Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, September 8th episode of Poets and Muses. We chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can follow us on poetsandmuses.com or via social media on SoundCloud, Instagram, as well as Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at the poetsandmuses.com website or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Naughty a Mouse, with whom I will be discussing his poem, Never Forget, and my poem, Red, White, and Blue. Before we do that, however, I am going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Valley during the week of September 9th. On Monday, September 9th from 5 to 7 p.m., Hayden's Fairy Review will be hosting its Magic Issue launch party and poetry reading with Jabari, Jawan Allen, Raquel Gutierrez, and Felicia Zamora at Fillmore Coffee Company at 600 North 4th Street in Phoenix. From 6 to 7.45 p.m., Christy White and the Arizona State Poetry Society will be hosting her monthly Mustang Poets Open Reading and Discussion at the Mustang Library at 10101 North 90th Street in Scottsdale. From 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., Patty will be hosting her monthly Poetry Roundtable Workshop at Changing Hands Bookstore in Tempe at 6428 South McClintock Drive. On Tuesday, September 10th from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop at the Chandler Community Center at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 7 to 9 p.m., Arizona Masters of Poetry will be hosting its monthly creative collaborative jam writing workshop and open mic at the Fairtrade Cafe at 1020 North 1st Avenue in Phoenix. From 8 to 11 p.m., Ken Kong will be hosting his bi-monthly The Underground Experience at La Flor de Calabaza at 705 North 1st Avenue, Suite 110 in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 8 p.m. On Wednesday, September 11th, from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m., Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing will be hosting its Poeming in Code, Singing to Our Beloveds, a poetry workshop with Dennis Smith. This will be taking place at the Polium Auditorium at the Burton Bar Central Library, which is at 1221 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. From 8 to 11 p.m., Phoenix Firebird Events will be hosting For the Love of Phoenix Open Mic at Grand Avenue Pizza Company at 1031 Grand Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic will start at 7. On Thursday, September 12th, from 6.30 to 8 p.m., the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing will be hosting an evening with Dennis Smith again at the Polium Auditorium at the Burton Bar Central Library, which again is at 1221 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. From 7 to 9 p.m., Long Known Publishing will be hosting its weekly Phoenix Poetry Slam at the Lost Leaf, taking place at 914 North 5th Street in Phoenix. Make sure to get there by 6.50 to participate. From 7 to 9 p.m., Wordplay Cafe 
will be hosting its open mic at the Nile at 105 West Main Street in Mesa. From 8 to 11 p.m., Quentin Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic at Jobat Coffee and Bar at 333 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7.30. On Friday, September 13th, from 7 to 9 p.m., Cultivate Coffee will be hosting its monthly open mic at 505 West Dunlap Avenue, Suite E in Phoenix. Signing up starts at 6.30. From 7 to 9.30 p.m., Shante O'Ryan, Bill Campana, and Jack Evans will be hosting their monthly Caffeine Corridor open mic and poetry series at 9 The Gallery, which is at 1229 Grant Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up to read starts at 6.45 p.m. From 8 to 11 p.m., Latoski and Speaking Into Existence will be hosting his monthly Smoke It Into Existence open mic at Just Blaze Smoke Shop at 1001 East Camelback Road in Phoenix. On Saturday, September 14th, from 5 to 6.30 p.m., the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing will be hosting a poetry reading with Javier Zamora at Palabras Bilingual Bookstore, which is at 1738 East McDowell Road in Phoenix. From 6.30 to 10 p.m., Sozo Coffee House will be hosting its open mic night at 1982 North Elma School Road in Chandler. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Naughty, a mouse. Hi, Naughty. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Great. I feel like you should be doing a Mighty Mouse uh, kind of a voice or, or Mickey Mouse. We're like, oh, hi. <laughs> just, just pop in with that. It's a great day to be here, guys. <laughs> I, have, I have some helium balloons to help. <laughs> ah, darn. I forgot to buy those. <laughs> <laughs> So you brought with you today the poem, Never Forget. But before we get into that, I would love for you to tell the audience a bit about yourself. I think of myself kind of like a hillbilly. So I was born in Pittsburgh, but I grew up an hour to the east, about eight miles from where Flight 93 crashed, mm. which was the inspiration for this poem. Mm. But I kind of grew up as a farm boy, a hillbilly, mm. without any of the actual skills. I couldn't fix a tractor. I couldn't fix a car. <laughs> <laughs> I just sat out in the woods and I read books all the time. Right, and you, you have like a, whatchamacallit? Oh, what do you call that thing you put in your mouth and chew on it? Oh, the, like, like, uh, like um, a straw or Yeah, just, just like a piece of wheat or something that you're chewing on? Oh, no, no, no. I think a corn no. cob pipe or something, but I don't know if that's what you're thinking yeah, of. Yeah, I'm thinking of just like a straw from the ground that you pick up and you put More it Tom in Tom Sawyer mouth. style. Yes, yeah. yes, very much yeah. so. That stereotypical image of Americana, middle yeah. America. Yeah, with, you know? with like the little thatched kind of hat. Yeah, and like torn this off. kind of hat. And then, of course, you have to be <laughs> good at baseball. In fact, we're just talking about the natural at this point <laughs> oh you know what that's though i didn't know until i was in like second grade that other people could see leaves on the trees because my eyesight was so bad oh, so yeah. people would try and play baseball and i would just get knocked in the face and not oh, be able to no. catch it or see it oh. and i never caught up from that like lagging skills oh, no. and so baseball was not my forte i was the kid they'd be like move in move in <laughs> yeah. Well, so you, you basically chose books instead. So instead, yeah, you were yeah. chewing on a straw and sitting on a tractor reading books. Yeah. To yeah. kill a mockingbird. Right? Exactly. Right. And, and, and it wasn't like no one trusted me with the tractor, but my friend would be like, you can sit on my tractor and read the book. <laughs> <laughs> and click. 
<laughs> cool. Yeah. Cool. And how did you get into writing and poetry specifically? Uh, I really lucked out. I had a couple of amazing English teachers mm. in middle school and high school, and it was a small town, so one of the best English teachers was actually one of my friend's older sisters. Okay. And so she also ran like the theater program and a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. She gave me the freedom in class to write if I wanted like a, a violent story or something, whatever else. She was like, if you take out the swear words, I'll take that copy of it. Oh, cool. And so it really like, whereas school could sometimes be a box that you might be put in. Right, right, right. It like gave me a chance to flourish and like be creative. Nice. And it was also, Mrs. Brisbane Dime, you're amazing. I learned about English and forms and stanzas mm. from her. So that was like a, a role model and inspiration. Nice. Thank you, Mrs. What was it? Mrs. Brizendine. Brizendine. Thank you, Mrs. Jen Brizendine. <laughs> cool. Are you still friends with her brother? Yeah, actually, I'm going to visit him next week. Oh, cool. And I'll probably end up seeing her as well. He ended up getting half the football team to join the plays and everything because it was a small town. That He's like, kind of awesome. we need male characters. Everybody get in here. You'll be in English class. We'll get a few more points. Like, get, get on the cast. Yeah. So it was a really fun so environment. It, 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 is like glee. it is like Glee. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Because there was the marching band and everything else. Glee with no singing talent. Myself in particular, <laughs> she actually told me, she was like, you have to lip sync. She, <laughs> you like, you? She, yeah, she was like, you, you're in the back, you, you're, you have no idea what tune is or toning or anything else, so we just need to mute you in the background. Know, Do all the hand such motions. That's a shame, because you have such a beautiful baritone voice. Well, thank you. well, she was fine with me speaking. Speaking parts she was fine with, but singing she was like, no, <laughs> shut it down. So she was like, you, do all the raps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, she would develop huge sets. So we still talk about when we had to do uh, Les Mis. And, and it was so much fun. But I remember carrying around the Rue Plumet gates that we built. Like, and she, you know, we have all the linemen from the football team. Like, get it on stage. We've got 10 seconds. <laughs> wow, wow. We have you actually seen the Broadway women? I've seen the Broadway version is not going to be the one that has Wolverine in it, Hugh Jackman. <laughs> so no, I've seen the Hugh Jackman version. Ooh, which is... Have you seen... This is... Uh, it was like a three-hour film epic that came out maybe like eight years oh, ago. Oh, I, yes. I did see that. And, I'm and sorry. Like, I thought you meant you meant like Hugh Jackman actually was... Because he was on Broadway for something else. Was, so did he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I thought maybe he did a short run of it or something. I, I forgot... <laughs> I didn't know if he did the Broadway one or not. I just know yeah. about the one. And who was Russell Crowe was like uh, Javert. Yeah. That was cool. It's pretty amazing. I mentioned that because it's kind of funny that you said your school play of Les Mis had a complicated set. Because Les Mis, of all the Broadway shows that I've seen, and I've only seen like half a dozen or something, mm-hmm. was one of the most interesting set designs because it had... The barricades actually come in as two pieces and get yeah. together in the middle of the stage. Yes. So they must have wheels underneath the stage, which was like so cool. It was to see it visually was like epic and intricate, but instead of us having wheels under the stage, mm-hmm. we had like me, the center, you know, like the tight end, like <laughs> carrying the guys it on stage. With their legs. <laughs> yeah, just hauling in there, carrying it. But it was a lot of fun. Amazing. It was a small town where I remember, like, my neck of the woods didn't have high-speed internet until I went to college. Mm -hmm. And so it was just a kind of thing where 
that was a really beautiful window on a lot of the things that I have mm-hmm. as part of me now. Right. The right. writing, poetry, acting, performing, like all of that came from that. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of gives me an idea of how that came about, you know, that combination. Because you do a lot more slam poetry, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that makes sense that you have that theater background. Yes. Yeah. I remember one of the fun experiences. Our county had like a Shakespearean monologue contest. Cool. And so that I think was what the first challenge. This, this is so, totally blows my mind. It this was, is awesome. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it, it was for the whole county. And so this was not Pittsburgh's county, but the one nearby, uh-huh, bordering uh-huh. Uh, Westmoreland County. And you got to go perform for the county competition in Pittsburgh if you were like one of the finalists at uh-huh, like uh-huh. a Pittsburgh theater, like on stage with like PBS or something else filming it. Um, And so those were the kind of opportunities that Jen Brizendine would like bring to our school to like let us know about. She's amazing. Inspirational teacher. Excellent. Yeah. Middle school teachers were great too because I'd be like, oh, we're writing a couplet today. I'm going to do weird things. And they'd like accept (laughs) it. But that was... Nice, nice, nice. But she basically built the foundation. Yeah. And she was... And because it was... I think I had her for like three years of English, like two years of English class and like Uh one year of writing maybe like one year of independent study because it was a small school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she was the teacher for all of the plays, all of the musicals. Right, right, And right. so that was like Mrs. R- Miss Ranieri in eighth grade, also formative, but not like a three or four year block of like, right, right, right. this is how to be an artist. Yeah. So you basically started writing poetry at that time. Mm-hmm. I dabbled in like middle school, but I've been writing a lot by high school. Okay. It helped me deal with heartbreak, Anger. Yeah. And as a teenager, I think those are probably the two basic emotions that you're mm-hmm. dealing with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, given what you went through, I don't know if you want to go into it. Totally yeah, fine. because because of the the other poem that we were going to talk about, yeah. which is I don't know how autobiographical, which I think. So yeah, given that poem, I was like, well, yeah, yeah, I can I can understand it. Yeah. So, so would you like to read the poem for us, and we can Absolutely. go into the. Nitty-gritty. Does the sound look like it's going all right for everything on here? Yeah, it looks good. Thank you. Go right ahead. Whenever they tell you to remember the ill-fated 11th of September, they never ever want you to focus on the fact that everyone came together. On that day, ten assholes hit two towers, and before they fell, they burned for hours. But hundreds of people climb the stairs wearing all of the gear that people must wear when they are one of those that we have hired to run not away but into a fire. And those were just the first of the everyday heroes, thousands that came running down to ground zero, not just firefighters but police and paramedics pulling all-nighters triple duty like sleep, forget it. Because out there in the ash and the rubble, there could be one more person hurting in trouble. So they dug and they dug And they dug as the days turned to weeks and their lungs turned black because they knew no matter what, their families were going to want their bodies back. When they tell you never forget, they don't mean any of these facts. They say remember but don't take the time to remind you of the giant impromptu evac. See, while the towers burnt in Manhattan, no one knew what next would happen. The island was choked with dust and smoke. The subways and the bridges were shut down. People started to jump in the East River to flee what they feared was a killing ground. So the Coast Guard went for broke. They hopped up on the radio calling anyone, anyone with boats. 
and from all directions they came, tens of thousands, and anything that would float, like proof you can find all you need in the hearts of ordinary folks. Four places would have been hit that day if the assholes had had their way. The only reason it was three and not more were the people on plane number four, because some of them kept their cell phones on and heard about the planes hitting the Twin Towers in the Pentagon, and they were shocked, and they stopped dead, and they were scared. But they said, well, if today is my last day, then I am not going out that way. Do you still doubt the truth? Do you want more proof that humans will sacrifice for the many? Mark Sasseville and Heather Penny sent to get that fourth plane on jets so fast they didn't even have missiles attached yet. They raced off at the speed of sound with one way to bring that plane down, not knowing that the people on board had already put it in the Pennsylvania ground, just knowing their success meant their death. People say never forget, but they focus on the flames and forget the rest because they want you to miss what came next. That's why they call it the aftermath. They want your eyes to slide right past human compassion on a scale so vast it might be more than our minds can grasp. The chain of hearts and hands and brains from the firefighters to the police to the EMTs to the staff in the ER rooms who went knee-deep through a bloodbath pulling people back from the tombs like, this day shall not be your last. They don't want you to remember that. Whenever they tell you to remember, they mean the same handful of frames. The last few seconds of flight have only three of those planes, the towers and the halo of flames and the numbers of Americans slain because they want your anger and your rage and your pain. They want you ready to be trained, to drop bombs out of planes or put two in someone's brain. They want you so mad that your mind short circuits, so mad that you don't even stop to ask, is any of this shit worth it? Or the most basic question. Do heroes take life or protect and nurture it? Thank you. Thank you so much for that read. Oh, I can feel it. Thank you. So where were you when the plane went down? I think when the first plane went down, I was sitting in Mrs. Everhart's English class because I was East Coast. So for me, it was all same time zone. So they went down mm-hmm. at like 8 and 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. And a few, because this was like the cusp of the digital age, mm-hmm. there was like one or two people in class who had like a cell phone mm-hmm. and got a message from their parents saying something bad had happened. Mm-hmm. And so I remember we were in English class and they were kind of like, oh, well, no one really knows. Just go on to your next class. We have a test today. It was a totally normal day. Mm-hmm. And my next class was banned. And so we were sitting there playing, I had a tenor sax. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the flutists had like a full thing on their phone. And they were like, no, there's been like a bombing and attack. Mm-hmm. And we need to watch this. Mm-hmm. And still no one knew what was going on. There were like yeah. two people. There was no panic. And we had a very odd principle. <laughs> and so the, uh, the music teacher was like, I don't know what's going on here. If there's something big... We can watch it at the end of class. We'll save five minutes at the end of the period while you're packing up your instruments. And the principal ran by a few minutes later and stuck his head in the classroom and just yelled, We are not at war with anyone! And helpful. complete non-sequitur. And then he just ran down the hall and like stuck his head in the next classroom and like kept yelling. And because it was a small town, he was also the football coach. So if you can imagine like football coach, like... (laughs) Down, hut to war. Just oh like my God. we were all like, man, that was coach. I don't know. And he kept running down the hallway. My dad showed up a few minutes later, mm-hmm. pulled me out of class because my mom had sent him around to go to the different schools, pick mm-hmm. up all the siblings, bring everyone home. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And he started telling me on the way home, and I still didn't understand mm-hmm. the big deal. I was like, I know a few people who've been on a plane. Mm-hmm. We're far from the airport. Planes mm-hmm. fly out of the sky. Like, I worry about meteors hitting us all the time. I don't... Yeah. I think we're okay. We got a football game on Friday. That sounds horrible, but what are we going to do? I didn't mm-hmm. understand the fear that it generated for everyone else. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe because I've never been in, like, a wartime situation or something else. Yeah. Well, we've never really been invaded since the 19th century, right? Yeah, yeah. The War of 1812. They yeah, came yeah. and burned down right. the uh, White House. Yeah. At that point, the Flight 93 had already crashed. Mm. you know a few miles from town and it being a small town people had been outside and seen it coming down wow so people did you see that is there another one and I was like well I mean if planes are falling out of the sky like as much as I want to run somewhere where are you going to may as well wait in one spot let's go about our day hopefully everything moves on I was very much unfazed by the day Mm. and also perhaps because the first thing I remember in terms of movies was Independence Day oh yeah you see a whole New York blow up and I was like we've seen this this is really bad hopefully nothing else happens right right it's kind of strange right to get training from movies yeah yeah for when apocalypse happens and then it actually happens I was in New York yes you mentioned this to me at the time yeah but I was in Queens and I had an interview in Manhattan I was just so in shock I guess because I called the recruiting company I was like I'm not coming in yeah you were like (laughs) And he basically kind of said, no shit, Sherlock, without saying those exact words. Yeah, yeah. At the time, I was like, don't be an asshole, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I didn't say that to him, but I was thinking, jeez, what a jerk. A little sensitivity today. <laughs> yeah. But it was just such a weird moment, not only because I was watching it on TV, even though it was so close, I was still watching it on TV. And as it was happening, because... You know, you were spared that sort of live Absolutely. coverage, which yeah. was good because it was very panic-inducing, apart from your principal, who was completely it's panic-inducing. True. Oh, my God, yeah. Not a calming influence. No. No, no. no like him, his actions, juxtaposition with his words, you know. Yeah, there yeah. is not, we are not at war, but that action is yeah, yeah. not send anybody to, into panic. But the TV, I'm sure they didn't mean to do it, but it was basically wall-to-wall coverage. CNN was pretty new, right, at that time. Yeah, yeah. And at that time, just reports were coming in. Whatever time it hit, it was like 10 minutes after that that Mm -hmm. I turned on the TV and watched. So they didn't really know how many targets were being hit, right? It was all panic mode. It was like... Oh my god, the towers on, were on fire. Oh, Pentagon got hit. And mm-hmm. somebody had told me, I forget if it was a friend who had told me or on the news as well, like the Washington Mall is on fire, I was told. Yeah, there were all sorts of absurd reports coming Yeah, out, it was right? just insane. And because of what the insanity that you saw in front of you on the TV, and it was a small screen, thank God. Yeah, yeah. You just didn't know. It really was like Independence Day, except live. I remember from that day, as soon as I got home, my whole family just kind of posted up around the TV, mm-hmm. watching like the footage on CNN or whatever else, mm-hmm. ABC. Mm-hmm. The thing I remember the most is the repeated playing of, like even by that day, mm-hmm. like you'd have reporters coming in and this and that saying, but they just kept showing over and over, like the plane hitting the buildings. Yeah. Yeah. It was like replay. It was like, this is the best replay we're going to get for the year kind of a thing, right? And, yeah. Even at the time, I was like, I don't want to watch this. Like, we've been in the living room now for like two hours. Mm-hmm. If there was another building getting hit, I'm sure they would be showing that. Mm-hmm. By the time I wasn't like thinking through all these things, I was right. still mostly like, 
I'm 15. We have a football game on Friday. <laughs> Mom, give me the car. I'm going to go back to school. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And like, let me go to practice. Like most mm-hmm. people didn't go home. When I look at it now, there was television in the 60s. Can you imagine them playing the assassination of JFK over and over every day for like a month after that? But I wonder when it happened, on the day it happened, if they did. I don't know if they did that, right? Because I felt like journalism in those days had a sort of like, we're the gatekeepers. There are certain things we're not going to show you these. I wonder, though, because there is that clip of him. With and it could his be, head going forward. And it could be like a copyright issue. It could be something else. Right. But I just think in terms of like the tactfulness of it, or I guess maybe tact is not the word, but if you think of 9-11 as a day where journalists were shedding a lot of what they used to have as like principles, mm. because maybe you don't have any military experts on that day because they're all so busy because nobody knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. But it seems like instead of showing for the 487th time, Bring on a public health expert. What are people going to need in New York tomorrow? Yeah. How can you help? Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, that could have been something where like, we don't know what's going on. If another attack happens, obviously we'll update you. But in the meantime, here's, you know, the Dr. Ruth of public mental health for cities. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's something. Well, I think with hindsight, definitely, that's hopefully, now that this has happened, they've had better training since then, you yeah, know, each yeah. network. But at the same time, I feel like because... Most of the big networks, they have their offices in Manhattan. Midtown is usually, if I remember correctly, is where most of the media, especially TV media, have their offices. But the sense of panic they must have had. Because sometimes we require journalists to be more calm than we are, whereas they're just as human. And they're probably just like your principal going like, we're not at war! (laughs) But... But still, I mean, they might have a little bit more information, but I felt like there was a lot of panic. There was a lot of, like, not knowing what to do. I remember watching this one reporter, which stuck out in my mind till this day, and it's not panic so much as inappropriateness, but given what I just told you about what I said to the interviewer that I wasn't coming in, it was just, like, shock, and I think we were all in shock. They started a few hours later, later on during the day, I think this was CNN, they were talking about the people who were killed. They were starting to already doing profiles of those people. And one guy they profiled, I think he was a banker. His sister, I think, was talking about him. And they had shown a picture, but she kind of said, like, ooh, and he's cute. (laughs) Like, he's dead. <laughs> yeah, and in the most horrible way yeah, yeah. imaginable. But all of these, I feel like it's more like now having the time to look back to say, well, I guess we were just being human and we were all in shock. I wonder, you know, because I imagine in Midtown Manhattan, which is basically headquarters to a lot of international news media as well, yeah. Even though CNN or other networks would have war correspondents, at that time we were pretty much in peace, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the, the first Iraq war had happened, what, like a, 10 years before? 91. Yeah, yeah. So we were pretty much in peace. So I don't know if anybody thought this dramatic thing was going to happen. And also to be happening dozens of blocks from where they were. So I understand what you're saying, and I think yeah, yeah. it's a fair point, and I think we do, now that this happened going forward, I'm hoping that they've had the training that, unfortunately, now it's just so many things are happening. All these mass shootings give training to yeah. how you should cover it, 
unfortunately it gives you practice over and over again. I, I guess, and I don't mean to say like, like I wasn't at the time like critical on thinking of all these levels right, of 15. Right, right, you know, right. Obviously like, it's football and I'm sick of seeing the same horrible thing over yeah, and over. Yeah, yeah. I, I would even want to give the impression that I should sit in judgment of people who were in Manhattan trying to say what was happening in Manhattan. Because right, they're right, going right. through trauma at that time. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. But I think that if you have a microphone or if you have a platform, mm-hmm. I think you have a responsibility. Yeah. Like if you can reach people, then you have a responsibility to do good or just things with that if you can. And so like if you're traumatized, like, well, it's no, no harm on you. Right. But when I think of a great example might be like Ed Murrow mm-hmm. in the 40s during World War II. And mm-hmm. he's like in Britain while they're bombing things. And his point is, and that was the launch of Nightly News, mm-hmm. actually occurred during World War II on radios, oh, wow. with this guy like, and they're raining bombs down, and his famous sign-off line was, good night and good luck, okay. which ended up becoming like a George Clooney movie or something. Yes, yes. But the whole idea was like, well, we can all go insane, and I can tell you, like, these are the things that have happened. Right, Here's right, some right. calmitude, like, yeah, my dad tomorrow, hopefully not. Right, right, and here right. we go. Do you know what I mean? Right, but that's what I was saying. I mean, I'm kind of, in a way... You you could tell that I also had some reservations in the way that they were reporting this. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, we can't help but judge critical thinking of what's going on around us, right? Yeah. And at, the, at the same time, as you said, I also want to play the devil's advocate a bit because our moral was sent into a situation. Yeah. So even though having bombs raining over your shoulder is never going to be calming. There's never going to be a calming aspect to that. Still, he had preparation as in he was being flown into the situation, right? That's what I'm saying. With 9 and 11, it would just, one day you wake up, you think you're going to do the normal job of being a reporter, especially in a headquarter news yeah. company, and suddenly in your backyard, things are happening so much that you don't know what else is happening, like multiple attacks. So yeah, yeah. that... That's the difference that I, I was thinking about. I agree with you that they should definitely, yeah, yeah. for the future, I'm hoping that there will never be something like that. But, you know, yeah, given yeah. what's going on in the world, I think it's good to be prepared and definitely bring up these public health experts. And I think later on they did, hours later, though, because, yeah, you know, yeah. they had to get over the initial shock of it. And I totally agree with the responsibility part. That's why that woman's comment has stuck in my head for the last 18 years. And to give her the benefit of the doubt, it almost like people will sometimes laugh at the most insanely inopportune yes. times because that's a way of dealing with yes. trauma and grief. Have you heard these episodes? And so, yeah. I'm giggling all over the place. Yeah. And, and that, that might have been her way of just like blurting out a complete non sequitur that was, yeah. she was like... I regret that too, but, you know, I yeah. just didn't want to say the same sad thing again in response to this story. Yeah, know? yeah, you kind of go into your automatic mode, you know, how you react to things, and sometimes it's not necessarily appropriate. Socially, socially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing I wonder, too, is if I think in New York, you know, like you said, this is the headquarters for all of these different media companies. Mm-hmm. And all of those media companies have plenty of war correspondents who mm-hmm. might not have experience reporting on American war zones, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but have literally spent 20, 30, 40 years in war zones. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure many of them would have been on 9-11 in those war zones, but certainly there was at least two dozen who were probably like back in Manhattan, you know, resting and writing up the next article, 
who those could have been the ones, the Edward Moreau's who are normally parachuting yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I think that's maybe, well, I kind of shut the TV after a while. Uh, yeah. I, I couldn't keep watching the replays of the it plane was, flying into, because as I said, it really just felt like, especially looking back, it just felt like there were some producers' wet dream happened that day. For some, yeah, for so like the, the best ratings. Yeah. And I think so much of my feelings about the way they played that day are mm-hmm. colored by the way that day has continued to be played in yes. media. Yes. And so it's like, absolutely, that day, give them carte blanche because they were all traumatized if yeah. you want. But yeah. then by September 14th, somebody should have been like, hey, if we're putting someone on camera for 300 million people to see, mm-hmm. what are we sharing? Yeah. What are we offering? Yeah. And that's, what, that's the role of a producer. Yeah. And the, the choice has been, for 18 years since, to show you something to make you angry and pained. Yeah, yeah. So that that can be manipulated. Yeah, and that's what your poem ha- is really about. Though it does talk about the heroism of these people. How many were there in the plane? I forget. Um, in, in Flight 93? Yeah, Flight 93. Flight 93? I don't... That one might have been... Like, I don't think it was a full plane. Yeah. people, 100 people, I don't know. Yeah, it wasn't that many. I, I remember hearing about it contemporaneously, you know, on that day. The, yeah. The news did come in, even though visually it's always going to be about the plane flying into the towers. Yeah. But the heroism, it was just amazing. And, and the point that you bring up in the last few lines of your poem is that what constitutes a hero, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There is definitely heroism in defense. Because yeah. we do need defenders. Yeah. At the same time, we have the benefit of knowledge now of how Afghanistan and Iraq happened. Yeah. And we know that at least one of those wars was not justified yeah, or yeah. had no immediate justification. Ironically, we're talking about it in 2019 when so many red lines are being just crossed and written yeah. on a daily, if not like hourly basis, right? It's one of those things where I'm like, did we learn anything from it? Like, not from the way they portrayed 9-11, but from an 03 and, you know, October 2001, when the media was like, well, let's continue to report unnamed intel sources without any other side of the story or any other context. Do you want to go to war again? Just for the ratings? Like, what is the purpose here? Yeah. With Iran. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this Iran thing... I So, two things that... Brought to mind. Well, one, when I heard the Iran thing, well, it really, throughout the last few years, but especially the Iran thing, it's Wag the Dog. Really, yeah. I didn't see that movie, but I yeah, kind yeah. of know the premise of yeah. it, and I feel like that's where we're the body of the dog and we're being wagged by the tail right now. I, I feel very much like, in light of what we're discussing, like this imagery, mm-hmm. I don't normally hold to the Pixar It Didn't Happen standard, like if someone's mm-hmm. telling you a story. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to war, like, yeah, they bombed a tanker, show us pics. If, the, if that happened, you would have that on every news station mm-hmm. for this week. If you don't have that video, it didn't happen, go home. Like, yeah. quit reporting it as such. Yeah, it, it's insane. And I feel like it's, again, given what the administration is doing in terms of distracting. Not that the victims of their tactics are not actually suffering for real. They are, absolutely. There are children in cages. There are people who are gone missing because of these terrible tactics. At the same time, they're using these terrible tactics to hide other things. Yeah, yeah. For lack of a better word, it's a clusterfuck. It's a shit show all around. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in many ways, Osama bin Laden 
has gotten what he wanted. Absolutely. He laid out, here's the seven things I hope to achieve with this attack. Mm. And media on day one was like, we'll do number one for you. And then on October, they were like, well, number two, that sounds like a great plan. It's just, who gave us this list? Oh, whoops. You know, like that. I think that his goal was to inspire fear and hatred and to trigger violent reactions. And the alternative could have been, no, like, let's focus on the, the firemen. Let's focus on the regular people who took their boats in to rescue everyone off the island. Right, right. Let's focus on these people who decide to sacrifice their lives so that other people wouldn't die. It's really important to realize that, and, and going back to your last stanza, to say, why are we killing so much more people? Why are we triggering the killing of so many innocent people? Yeah. The I don't know if you saw on the news... <laughs> Our esteemed POTUS yeah. might be pardoning a war criminal who yeah. took pleasure in killing innocent civilians. Oh, the uh, the, ar- the army ranger. Yeah. It was like a it yeah. was like a captain or something of a squad. Yeah, several people actually. He's sending people into panic mode again. I, yeah, I, yeah. At this point, I'm just saying, well, what else are you doing? What else are you doing with the other hand? Because clearly, this is again a, a distraction tactic. Is Horrible professional military people have come out to said this is going to endanger our military personnel. Yeah. It's going to not just lower the bar, period. But well, it would benefit potentially Saudi Arabia, and so here we go. It, They're a great customer. we got to protect them. Yeah, and ironically, we know on the day 9-11 happened, the administration at that time flew Osama bin Laden family out of New York. We know that. Well, and that 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And let's invade Iraq. Yeah. Let's invade <laughs> Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and let's not ban Saudi Arabia in that Muslim ban that Mr. Yeah, Trump yeah. has had. Let's not put that country on. Let's let that country kill uh, Washington Post, Post reporter. Yeah. Uh, let's let all these happen because you know they've got money. They've got their fingers in our many economic pies. <laughs> so we were talking about Game of Thrones before. It was we were mm-hmm. getting everything set up, and we were pointing out how it can be traumatic to see all those things on screen. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I think when I watch Game of Thrones is that a that's like what the Medici's and the Borgias mm-hmm. like look like. Mm-hmm. But also that that is what Saudi Arabia looks like today. Mm-hmm. So if I think of that stretch of geography, I'm like, well, for like 2,000 years, almost without fail, that's been an area for public crucifixion, beheading, and killing of witches. Mm. And so when we think of progress, we always think of progress inextricably links social progress and economic progress mm-hmm. and technological progress. And I'm like, Saudi Arabia is essentially a feudal state. It's mm. the family of Saud owns Arabia, so therefore it is Saudi Arabia. Mm. It is monarchs. Mm-hmm. And instead of having the mountain to protect them, mm-hmm. they have spyware that they can put on the phones of dissidents. Mm. And then you don't need to have the mountain. It can be just a regular guy who can follow the phone tracking signal yeah. and arrest the witch to be beheaded in the public square. I almost wish that Game of Thrones had like a quick follow-up. Like This scene was based on the May 25th execution of a witch in Riyadh. Right, like this, right. You know what I mean? Like, that would be good because every good writer would take an inspiration from what's happening around her or him. So it's, it would be good to definitely have that reference point and be like, oh my God, this is actually happening. This is not out of nowhere. This is not just... A flight of fancy, like where they invent this. Yeah, or purely history. 
because it's still yeah. happening. Because I was talking about this incongruence in terms of advancement, you know, mm-hmm. progress. As you were saying, human civilization or any progress on any level is sort of a blob. It yeah. doesn't necessarily uh, progress in the same direction. It's not uniform, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this poem. Uh, is this Scott Gilmore? Gil, Gil Scott Heron? Gil Scott Heron. Thank yeah, you yeah, yeah. so much. That poem from 60 years ago, Whitey's on the Moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's basically talking about the same thing, but talking about how African-American community is being treated as if it's 100 years ago, whereas yeah. we're already on the moon. Yeah. It feels like that, that sort of dichotomy of now we're thinking of going to Mars. We're thinking of colonizing Mars. Yeah. Partly because of this blob effect of not being able to get our act together on Earth. Yeah, I forget if it was like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye or like one of those gents Mm -hmm. who said, we're just going to take, maybe Stephen Hawking, he's like, we're going to take the same social problems from Earth and just transplant them on Mars. Yeah, it's like, yeah, we buy ourselves a little bit more time, but really ultimately we're not solving the problems that really needs to be solved. It's not to have more, how do you carry your social media around? But really, how can we sit, we should really need to have large-scale sit-downs, town halls all over the world, and just talk with each other and figure out how we can advance as a species. I completely agree with you, because I think that social progress, as I was saying earlier, is, we think it's tied to technological progress. But it's not. But it's not linked in any way. No. And I think that... You mentioned the 60s, and this is like a project that I'm working on, mm-hmm. is trying to make essentially like a little series about, right, here's the development of computers, mm-hmm. here's the development of rockets and satellites, mm-hmm. here's the death of all the major civil rights leaders. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the 60s, it's like, all right, 1961, JFK's like, let's go to the moon. And seven years later, you finally have, like, no cell phones, microchips are still whatever size, mm-hmm. Micro Evers, everyone's <laughs> dead, and COINTELPRO is running full speed, mm. and you still need a few more years to get to the moon. And so if you think about what it took in terms of social stratification and consolidation to make those industries build, why were they riding in Alabama? That's where NASA was. Mm-hmm. Alabama, Mississippi, like, there was an ex-Nazi running NASA while Bull Connor was running Birmingham down the street. And so it's like you can't even separate technological progress from social repression. It was built on that social repression, I think, in a sense. Yeah. And, and having people focus, like, look, we went to the moon. No, you went to the moon. We kept dying. Yeah. We kept suffering. Like, that was yeah. just a story to put over top, like, identifying yeah. with Danny the instead of the people yeah. in the city. We can't sit in the same diner as you. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? So it's just like, like a, it is insane. And it is, much of our progress is built on the backs of people who are either underpaid or not paid. Look at prison labor now. How yeah. that is, I feel like slavery never really went away. In, in that sense. Yeah. And the fact that voting rights are being taken away from people in prison for a variety of reasons. So kudos for Florida, really, for bringing yeah. bring back rights to prisoners. Great step, and we should do that. We should recognize that tie between slavery, our advancement, as yeah. you said. I'm looking forward to your doing this project. Have you started? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Outlined everything, and it's like yeah. I'm trying to figure out in the same way I'm doing 
like a sugar series for YouTube that I'm putting Ooh, together. Nice. I have to get the illustrations working with my. I have some illustrations oh, cool. I work with. Nice. Are they the ones who did that? Those illustrations again? Mm-hmm. The ones, the illustrations that I sent you, kind of the black and white comic style. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had those made by an artist named Graham Sisk, who lives in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Great guy, actually an art teacher. Mm. And that was like one of his side projects. Right, right. And he's the one that I want to have work on, like technological symbols to like help bring that to life. Nice. Yeah. And you were talking about feudalism in, in Saudi Arabia, and I feel like we have that here as well, but it's more tech giants who are the current feudal lords. And yeah. it's becoming more and more like that. I've actually written a poem about homelessness and talking about the new fiefdoms. Yeah, I saw something, one of those just like sad, like why why I want this one more detailed story, mm. where there was uh, the tech giants, they're like GoFundMe donated 80 grand to a GoFundMe <laughs> to clear homeless people out of like Oakland and San Francisco. Okay, and it was okay. like something well, being funded. Good, good cost at least. And then it was, well, but not like in a friendly way, like not like let's give them housing. Oh. Like some sort of brutalist ban. Like I can't remember the exact what? stats on it, oh, but it was like. Man. I you was know, getting like, my hopes yeah, up no, for I, all of two seconds. We, we must move the peasants beyond the edge of the Red Keep. Let them starve. Yeah, it really does it's, feel like that because there was Super Bowl a few years back in San Francisco that they were clearing all the homeless encampments mm-hmm. out. And I remember when I was in L.A., I was walking some one place or another because I got off on the wrong stop. Yeah. I just saw block after block after block of nice tents. Yeah. There were nice tents. Which means that people were working. They just can't afford to have yeah. brick and mortar yeah. housing. Yeah, they have like a Planet Fitness membership and to, or a YMCA or whatever, so they yeah. can go shower and that's... Which is insane. And this is something that I noticed since 2008, this mm-hmm. exponentially increase in the number of homeless population. Not just in major cities like, like New York or yeah, L.A., yeah. But everywhere that I, I talk with people about homelessness, and they, they always tell me, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, that that's happening. I've been fortunate enough to go on, like, a lot of road trips since I graduated college, just mm-hmm. cross-country road trips. And when I went on tour last year, like, it was almost every city I went to, it was just, like, the homeless encampments were some of the first things you would notice. Mm. And I remember people casually when I was in Humboldt in like Northern California, they were like, yeah, 15% of the student population is homeless. And I was just like, and some of them there, it was like, well, they want to be because they want to like commune in the woods or something. And I was like, okay, but just saying that there are five hippies that want to live in a yurt doesn't mean that you don't also have 500 kids who are like, oh, food's more important. (laughs) Yeah. And that's just insane. Yeah, it really is. And that is going back to what you were talking about, this this disproportionate or the block effect of technological advancement versus human ethical advancement or moral advancement. Even though it's not so much advancement or just living up to the moral codes that we actually believe in. We don't. Both the Taliban and some of these white extremists, they tout their own good books that have incredible moral values that are not being applied, actually. If if you honestly believe in that, then why do you only do the hurt hurt people part rather than help people part, right? Because both books have that. Exactly. Well, and I think, too, it's like if you're holding up Christian values, the point was that the New Testament was a revision on some of the ideas in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And so if you keep quoting the Old Testament, well... Your Christian focus on the new one. Yeah. Update. Yeah, exactly. And even the Old Testament has some very good values as well, yeah, right? Yeah, like, and so all of these 
three religions of the book, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. They're based on very similar tenets. Mm-hmm. They're talking about the same God, in fact. Um, yeah, yeah. I feel like it's kind of like just cousins fighting and everybody else is being impaled by whatever sharks they're throwing. Yeah, they're yeah. breaking and yeah. ricocheting around. And I'm like, no, no, no. Can you just go into the desert and fight amongst yourselves? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, leave us out of it. <laughs> but... Speaking of shards and such, it is the fact that outside this horrendous 9-11 event that happened on our soil that also killed Middle Easterners and Muslims. I was looking up the countries. There were 77 countries whose citizens died in those towers. Yeah, Yeah, and there were a number from both the Middle East as well as Muslim-majority countries like Pakistan and Malaysia. Yeah. Besides... Like Jordan, actual Middle East countries, yeah. versus what people think of as Middle East countries, which yeah. Pakistan is not part yeah, of. Yeah, it's like, so if, if you have a map here, you'll see. Yeah, but it's also not quite clear, right? Because there are regions that are more politically defined than geographically defined. Certainly. I don't want to jump on if, let me do the wrong thing. Like, what, is, what are you pointing at for the significance of that? It's interesting because it's tangent that I shouldn't go into because it's too long because it's kind of goes to education and ignorance and the lack of public education (laughs) huge can of worms that we can't open up and explain yeah on that note in terms of public education I just saw this thing on tv the day on the news Mm -hmm. and they were like no we've learned from the mistakes you know when we went into Iraq we didn't have Arabic interpreters but if we invade Iran we've got the Arabic interpreters ready to go (laughs) You're like, that's not the right language. Farsi. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, I think you're focusing on the wrong problem. Is we're like pointing the guy who just got killed in one of the towers that he's cute. It's kind of useless compliment. Useless compliment, first of all. But (laughs) to point out that is why I brought my poem, Red, White, and Blue. So I'm going to read that now. Excellent. She is a typical girl, sitting in the dining atrium, legs and arms crossed to ward off the freeze from the overzealous aircon blast, eyes fixed on her palm-sized screen, thumbing out the words, peace cannot be coaxed by the tip of a dagger. Her powder blue hijab melts comfortably into a perfectly matching long-sleeved top, all leading to that pair of bright red pantaloons, bursting with red-hot stars, like her wishes and dreams she hopes to realize by thumbing out her philosophy on her palm-sized screen. But sometimes the stars favor another's dreams, seeking security in eternity by blasting past civilian schemes of life that travels slow and steady to a death in a sudden fury. The glass atrium cries out. In a bursting flurry, the ceiling weeps in great dust tears, tearing its hair out in concrete chunks, mournful of life's forever lost. Sound becomes deaf, save a monotonous ringing. Amidst the slow motion of chaos unfolding, our girl's arm rests calmly extended, shrouded in cuts and dust, interrupting her powder blue top. Somewhere beneath her new home of concrete, 
and bent metal. Peaks heard the flated, faded red pantaloons, sparkling now only from the exposed wiring from a cracked open palm-sized screen, sobbing for the dreams it held within. I think it's really potent. I think when I read the title, I didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And when I read the first verse, there's nothing to indicate that it's someone presumably in the Middle East. Like, I was like, all right, this could be just an American. Someone sitting at home, well, you got your phone, like, because I think me. Right, you right, right. only see someone like yourself right. have some other details. And so I thought, oh, normal person, maybe like a high school girl, a college person sitting in, like, Starbucks and phone. Yeah. And then when you see the next part with the hijab, like, a light turned on for me. Mm. And it was like, all right, the point is to see, like, the humanity here, like, this is the normalcy of life that's about to get interrupted, not that you know the interruption's coming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I thought that was because it's humanizing the victim in a way that we never, ever do yeah. when we discuss these issues. Yeah. Well, it actually deliberately put her in a setting where you can't tell where she is. Because she can, as I mentioned before, because 9-11 victims included Muslims. Yes. So she could have been a victim that was literally sitting in the atrium of one of the towers. Because there were lunch atriums. Exactly. And That's a great point. In my mind, I just thought of God drone attacks. Mm. And that was what it triggered for me. But I'm Wait, sorry. Which, which attacks? The drone attacks. Oh, yes. Like the drone warfare going on, and that yes. was what I thought of. But sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. You're, you're not. I deliberately made it very vague. Yes. So that she could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. She could be any of those victims of drone attacks of the current wars, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Yemen, Syria. Any of these things are, are bordering on what happened with 9-11 as... Mm-hmm. A consequence, a larger worldwide consequence of what happened. Yes. Because, again, the simplification that you talked about in your poem of just, oh, Americans are being killed, therefore we kill everybody else who's Middle Eastern or who's Muslim. Because, Mm -hmm. again, Mm -hmm. it goes back to the point that Middle East and Muslim majority countries overlap, but they don't cover each other. Yeah, they're not congruent. Yeah, yeah. So, because Afghanistan is not in the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of nuance that's lost when we talk about Mm -hmm. 9-11, which you talk about in your poem, is that we should not be working so hard to realize or make real Osama bin Laden's dreams. And I think it was shocking to me how, not only did he say, here's my plan, and, and that was like public, and we're like, oh, let's follow that then. <laughs> but also he was like, here's why I attacked you. Mm-hmm. You bombing us. Mm-hmm. All of these other things. And also infidels in Mecca and whatever else he right, had in right, it. Right. But I'm like, none of nothing on that list was they hate us for our freedoms. Mm-hmm. But that that became like they hate us for our freedoms, and they hate us for who we are. Yeah. Nothing, and we're blind to all that we do yeah. over there. It, it was It's a lot of gaslighting that got us into yeah. both wars, I would say. Even though Afghanistan, I can sort of understand. But again, we flew the Bin Laden families out. Not that they should be prosecuted yeah, yeah. for Osama's, you know. But you might have some questions. Yeah, <laughs> some questions will be nice because he was being funded by his family because he yeah. was like no good doing nothing besides planning to kill a bunch of people, yeah. right? And attempted before because there was an attempt prior to 9 11. 
Absolutely. I think one of the things that was awkward for people, though, was that for a decade, like if you, there's old, you can pull up, I used to give it to my students to make them practice their um, citation skills. Ooh, I was like, if you find a newspaper article. I used to teach seventh grade history and writing. Oh. And so I no, I no longer am a certified teacher in schools. I just do online tutoring. Oh, okay, okay. But I would give my students uh, an independent article from 1995 mm-hmm. where it says, Warrior puts his army on the road to peace. And it's like this front page article with Osama bin Laden, and it talks about how we'd given him all this money to help him fight the Russians. And now he's taking his equipment and men, and he's building roads in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you take things like that, and you're like, well, he was a good guy 20 years ago, and all this and that, yeah. then it's just easier to gaslight and be like, no, 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 no. Yeah, because he, he became very disillusioned, yes. right? Which the disillusionment is totally understandable because we basically, again, use, <laughs> we do the things that America does, right? It's, yeah. it's doing yeah. this. In fact, part of the reasons that we have so many South and Central American <laughs> refugees is because of the political messing around that we do with yeah. other countries' domestic political affairs. The, uh, the leader of MS-13 was trained in Georgia. We trained him and taught him how to set up a cartel. Oh, my like God. That was oh, my God. I did not know that. Oh, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, it's insane the amount of things that can just come back to roost to haunt us, and then we kill more innocent people over. <laughs> I think that one of the things that I wish people could see is what the word militant means. Mm. I don't know if you know this, that whenever they say like there was a strike abroad mm. and they killed 12 militants, mm-hmm. if they're an adult male, they're preemptively labeled a militant. And so to me, <laughs> I think that's the basic, like if, if you hear about a police shooting, what happened with well, it was a black male and he was terrified. Isn't that logical? No, that's not. But that's the same thing that seemed like fancy and clean when Obama labeled all adult males in a military son militants. We killed 72 people. Well, five of them were female, so five of them might have been innocent. But the other 67, adult male militants, unless proven otherwise, and no one's conducting an on-the-ground right. thing. And never mind, they were in a wedding party or, or else, at yeah. a funeral, likely, because somebody else was being bombed. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> I think, like, those stories, like, the clear, you hit a wedding and then the family had a funeral, you hit the funeral. Like, those sort of absurd coincidences mm-hmm. make the news. But the the Intercept with Glenn Greenwald and Jeremy Scahill, mm. they had a team go through all of the files that you get FOIA and look at everything else. And they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, but they hit a truck on a road with five militants or five people going to the fair. Yeah. But if you're labeling all, it's worse than Hillary Clinton saying black males are super predators. If you're labeling all brown males as militants, you've right. justified right, right, mass right. slaughter. Yeah, it's... As you said, domestically, the equivalent is labeling all black male thugs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think in the U.S., it's like you at least have clear divisions. Like you have mm-hmm. a Black Lives Matter movement. The anti-war movements, though, don't really exist. Like under Obama, it was like, black lives matter, but brown lives matter. Like, mm, they're abroad, and we don't know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think that was shocking, you know? Yeah, and it's very sad for me. This is why I'm a fan, but I'm not a huge fan. And there were yeah. things that he did that unfortunately leads to what is happening today as well. Yeah. Today is a steeper slope, but, yeah, yeah. but the slope was always there. And fighting gravity is hard. Yeah. And so it's just really frustrating to see all of these nuance being poo-pooed and just going, oh, you're 
not a patriot if you don't support these causes. If you talk about the nuance of how since 9/11 more Muslims have lost their lives oh, yeah. than Americans yeah. because of bombings and because suicide bombings kill more Muslims actually. <laughs> yeah, like we think like here, but no, most of them are happening in other countries. Yeah, it's and they're not being reported as such. And we're not talking about just like even though there are you know a couple of dozen here, a couple of dozen there, but they are in the hundreds. I think one of the saddest things is that, and I think it's part of what creates like the so-called alt-right pipeline, mm-hmm. is there's such a complete media silence on suicide bombings abroad that's mm-hmm. occasionally only broken when somebody like InfoWars or Alex Jones or whoever points out that there was a suicide bombing in Nigeria, mm-hmm. Boko Haram killed 50 Christians. Look, the media doesn't care about Christians. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yes, they also killed that same week how many Muslims. Like, yeah. But the fact that the media at large is so silent on a topic, yeah. it allows crazy outlets to shine some small amount of needed light for their own nasty purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. Definitely very agenda-driven media has become much more prominent. Partly because they're screaming a very one-track message, Uh, right? Yeah, fear, fear, fear. Well, not just that. Even even more focused. It's like, look at these Christians being killed. Look at all the Christians being killed. Everything else is like, no no line shine on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, and and then and then and then divided by color lines as well because the church bombing in. Are you thinking of the church bombings that happened in the deep south? Either it was Alabama or Mississippi, where the police chief's kid no, was torching the churches. Well, that too. But I was talking about the one that just happened in South Asia. I forget the country. There's just two. I'm like, oh, Christchurch. No, that was a shooting. Yeah, but it, no, the the one that happened. That was on Easter. Yeah. There was a bombing at a church. It was a South Asian country where Christians are a minority. Yes. So because of the sort of color line divide where, again, foreign countries are not being covered unless it's Christians. But if, yes. if it's Christians, then is it white Christians or, you know, mm-hmm. the brown mm-hmm. Christians? or So, again, there's yeah. so much prejudice of so many categorized so prejudice kind of feeds into how media covers stories. Like, it's the validity of your victimhood. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. how worthy are these victims versus how worthy are those victims? Yeah, yeah. Or how useful is their narrative to whatever you're trying to push? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to be even more cynical, then it becomes that. Yeah, well, yeah. And it makes it easy for somebody like InfoWars. Alex Jones or Breitbart to say oh my god look at how media is just ignoring that I'm like they're just ignoring non-whites period <laughs> yeah 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 it's, it's a complete blanket like yeah yeah and it's so not fair and it makes it so much more poignant when people actually or the victims themselves like the girl who got killed by was he a Mexican immigrant I think he was right mm-hmm. and her father came out and said, don't politicize. Yes, stay off my daughter's memory. Yeah, she was a loving person. She would have hated this. Just because he did this doesn't mean every immigrant is bad or every Mexican-American. You know, don't blanket this. Don't use my daughter's memory. I felt like that was an act of heroics. Yeah, to step out and protect, absolutely. Yeah, because he was in so much pain time yeah so i really admire those people who are able to step outside of their own pain and 
say no. We can do better. Yeah. Reading these two poems back to back is kind of traumatizing. No, absolutely. Like, it's tough. I spend a lot of my day reading the news, and that is never fun. No, no. I hate to smoke cigarettes. I don't know what's worth smoking cigarettes or trying to stay informed. (laughs) I know, right? Both of them are very poisonous in many ways, especially the way it's being covered. You read international news like I read international news, and sometimes we find out about our own country through other people's reporting because our own media kind of refuse to... To cover certain things. Yeah. Yeah. We need to do it, even though it's incredibly traumatizing right now. I kind of don't do as much news reading anymore since I started the podcast because it's taken over my life. But it's because I've read so much news over the last 10 years that I am able to do this podcast. So I feel like, oh, I'm just kind of cutting myself at the legs here. And it's tough, too. I have some friends who are, like, politically aware but say less politically informed because Mm -hmm. they're, like, with that information, what will I do with it? You know, like, if I'm a paramedic, like, the best thing I can do is, like, go to work every day and, like, save and help people. Yeah. And so me knowing what's going on in these other countries... It's just me bringing negativity on myself. I can understand why people think of it that way, because we have a very limited capacity in terms of our brain power and attention span. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Imperfections. Yeah, we can't pay attention to all of it. So I can understand why for mental health reasons, people might not want to read the news or things like that. But you kind of have to, right? Because there's just so much going on that affects our everyday lives. Like this military guy being part of the tariffs on on Chinese goods. Yeah. Which comes back to a tax on the American. Yeah, and it will raise consumer goods. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I just read farm subsidies went to this Brazilian meatpacking company that has corrupt C-suite officials. Mm Mm-hmm. Those were subsidies that were supposed to go to the farmer because of the tariff, the initial set of tariffs against China. Yeah. So all of these things, even though we think, oh, they affect people far away, they affect countries far away, but no, really, it comes back to us. Just like what we did in Afghanistan in order to fight the Cold War, Russians came back to haunt us in some way because we didn't scale it down. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't excuse what Osama bin Laden did. It doesn't excuse what those 19 hijackers did. They were cold-blooded killers. It doesn't excuse that. But I think it does give us a window onto how we can do things better so to minimize. We can only do what we can do, right? So why not look at what we can do and do the best we can on our own part and then at least when... Things like when 9-11 happened, we can say, well, we did the best we can. Yeah. And not just on the intelligence front, but yeah. on the decades before that. that it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's something I wish people saw, too, that what we can do is always going to start individually and locally. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. like, why, like, why learn about the U.S.? Well, because that's where you can have more of an impact as opposed to Iran. Yeah. Like, how can you help? Don't think about the whole U.S. Think about your neighborhood. Think about your town. Think about your city. Yeah. You can think, if you have ideas for that, then scale them up. Like, Mm -hmm. learn globally, maybe. Think globally. But act locally. Yeah, definitely. Because it's hard. Even if your ultimate goal is to affect international policy, let's say. That's your goal in life. You still have to start locally because ultimately you're always dealing with people. Yeah. And no matter what. There are some characteristics that people are going to share in common no matter where you go. 
This is why, even though there are language barriers when you go abroad, you don't necessarily need a translator to understand somebody smiling at you or something. What language do you is, laugh in? Yeah. What are you crying? Yeah. You, you know. Yeah, exactly. You know, when somebody's furrowing their brow at you, they're kind of yeah, pissed yeah, at you, yeah. you know? And sometimes I'll hear people say that you shouldn't believe in, like, universal human attributes because that will lead you to imperialism and colonialism. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I mean, I think if you believe in universalizing attributes that leads you to empathy as opposed to that leads you to conquest, yeah. that might be a way to think about it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what things about everybody, but if I see someone crying, I think I can assume sadness. Yeah. You might not know why, but you know at least the emotion. You understand what that is. Again, it goes back to nuance and balance. Yeah, you can assume certain universal attributes. A part of it is that, you know, like 98 or 99% of our genes are in common. Yeah. Which is insane to think about that just 2% or 1%, whatever it is, that small percentage presents such differences in the population. It makes you take a moment of awe at the world. And see how things manifest. Yeah. It's just a small, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, we share so much in common, but you have such different color eyes and you're so much larger than I am. You know, like... Yeah, should we focus on the differences or the commonalities? Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, that's why I think if you just think of your primary education when you do essays of compare and contrast. Yeah, You kind yeah. of have to go back to those basics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a key part of those is the compare comes first. Yeah. And all we really do is contrast. Like, oh, they're yeah. different. They're scary. Yeah. I think some of it comes to the fact that we want to assert ourselves as individuals. And I don't mean that in an American sense. It's more so in America because we're such supposedly individualistic. Just like finding your own identity, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But everybody wants to have their own identity, right? You're not just part of a, a community. You're also your own person. Yeah. And so people want to contrast because we always default to, well, if I don't contrast, and I'm just a copy of somebody else. But you're yeah, not. Yeah, you never yeah. are. Even as an identical twin, you still are not. Yeah, yeah. It's tough, too. Sometimes you see the other important people where they don't want to stick out because they want to blend in. Yeah. They want to fit in. Yeah. I think the key to like identity is just belonging. Yeah. There is a lot of Purpose, that. You know, like, yeah, we want to be a part of something. We want to be that that sort of duality that pulling yeah. at us at different ends, right? The wanting to belong to to some kind of community and of wanting to assert our individuality. I think like if you think what's my purpose, it usually involves a relationship to others. Is it service to others? Mm-hmm. Is it leading others? Whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. I feel that like we've waved all manner of topics, which is totally fine. We have, sorry we have. Fine. No, no, no. Um, we can keep talking offline. But let me, yeah, yeah. just to wrap this particular episode up, yeah. if you don't mind telling us where we can see you read. Well, I am afraid to say that I'm a bit of a hermit sometimes, especially when I'm working on these other projects. <laughs> but I'm planning to come out to some of the Lost Leaf competitions. Okay. Where they have the Thursday Night Slams. Yeah, so Phoenix Poetry Slam. That's every Thursday at Lost Leave. At 6 p.m.? I feel like it's 7, but you have to get there by 6. 6 to sign up and all that. Okay, yeah. you're right. You know, Thursday after Phoenix Poetry, Jobot has an open mic. I heard that when I came off the last one. And I, oh, nice. I go in phases of, like, I want to go out and perform a lot. Mm-hmm. But I also have the, like, I want to bring new stuff. Oh, yeah. More often than not. And so mm-hmm. if I'm working on, like, new material... I will kind of hole up in my house. Then, ideally, if you're looking to find any of my stuff, just look at Naughty A Mouse on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, or Pulp and Vinegar on Facebook. 
because Naughty was not allowed to be used in my username. Really? So, but Naughty emails were pulp and vinegar with no spaces. Okay. You find my stuff as I start posting it online Ooh, cool. for these different series. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate this. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. According to Genome.com, all human beings are 99.9% identical in their genetic makeup. I include this link as well as the one for Flight 93's memorial in the episode notes, so be sure to check those out on SoundCloud. As always, you can follow us at poetsandmuses.com or via social media on SoundCloud, Instagram, as well as Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at the bottom of poetsandmuses.com or at the right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.